Welcome to Japan on Fire, episode 30 on Hideo Gosha's The Oil Hell Murder. And Hideo Gosha makes his last film and passes away. We say goodbye to the director of Free Outlaw Samurai, Hitokiri, and the Geisha by looking at his 1992 film The Oil Hell Murder. My name is Kenobi, and with me to conclude the series on Hideo Gosha is once again author Robin Gatto. So welcome back and uh, great job on the last episode my friend thank you very much hello bonjour and uh, we are gonna get into it but uh, first of all i didn't uh, really do my uh, homework in terms of uh, uh, researching what kind of work you do and so we didn't plug your your book until the end of last episode so we're gonna do it at the top of this episode so even though it's a french language book i'd really uh, like you to uh, talk about it uh, in whatever way you like so please uh, uh, promote your book uh, or your books rather because you've written two books on gosha is that right no it's it's actually one book and it's two volumes two sets yes it's part one is the biography and part two is the the movies oh uh, okay uh, that's a rather neat structure so uh, so you you could focus on the man in one book and specifically uh, the movies and the reviews in in the second uh... yeah that that was my publisher's idea but i I did two versions i did one version where i mixed everything biography and the the movies and i did uh, also a second version where i where i set i split into two parts so my publisher liked the, the second second idea most best at this point, is all his movies, Gosha's movies, available, or is there one or two that's uh, too elusive, uh, even for you as as an expert and uh, passionate fan of uh, Gosha? No, no, I've I've watched all the films and a few um, television episodes as well. I met Seichi Sakai in Japan. You remember the name of? Remember the guy I told you about who worked as an assistant editor to Michio Suwa, and he gave me a few CDs and DVDs and and articles and newspaper clips uh lots of lots of things and so i was able to you know in paris there's a um, japanese there there used to be a japanese video club where you could find a few films by hideo gosha like uh, uh gate of flesh which i was able to to watch as well and uh, and then you know more and more films with subtitles have been coming up so i think you you pretty much can can see the 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 whole thing now it may except maybe um carmen 1945 that is a gate of flesh which i'm not sure it has subtitles yet maybe you will be the one to uh, deliver subtitles to the world at least french subtitles because i know you do this either as a passionate hobby or you're actually paid to uh, provide translations for uh, for various works um, uh, so um, it, it, it's up to you you're you're flying the flag of gosha uh, uh, you're the one that everybody relies on robin so no not exactly um uh there are I, i'm sure there are some fan subbers uh around who did subtitles for films like um uh, fireflies in the north uh you you can find the film with uh, English and French subtitles, if I'm not mistaken, and as well as uh, probably uh, Four Days of Snow and Blood. I, I, I guess the film has a lot of different subtitles to it now in in several languages. Uh, so, but I'm not sure the film um, Gate of Flesh has subtitles right now. Well, uh, we know that uh, some of the catalog 
is with the Criterion Collection or Janus Films, even if not all. But they did, they did a few DVDs and at least a Blu-ray of Free Outlaw Samurai. But there were some additional titles that were never released on a disc, but were part of the streaming. And hopefully we're merely days, I think, away or a couple of weeks away from the Criterion Collection opening up their own online streaming channel. And hopefully immediately the Gorsha catalog will be available from the start because they had movies like Tracked and Hunter in the Dark and and I believe Oil Hell Murder was part of streaming on uh, on on Hulu uh, I'm not sure it ever was put up on Filmstruck before Filmstruck was taken down it is part of the collection even though they never saw maybe an opportunity or a uh, sort of a commercial sense to release uh, more than Free Outlaw Samurai or Sword of the Beast. Uh, Criterion went for the Gosha Samurai rather than the Gosha modern day uh, or uh, st- filmed stage play in the case of Oil Hell Murder. But it is part of the collection because if you go to IMDb, the image from the Oil Hell Murder has the Criterion logo, a film by Hideo Gosha. So it was streaming at one point and hopefully it will very soon um very soon again so you'll you'll have subtitles uh, therefore okay how 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 did you how did you watch the, how did you see the film actually yeah. well through one of your contact i was uh, i was kind of supplied a copy even though i was uh, going to buy a copy that was based on the french dvd release of the film uh, but uh, with english subtitles so we're talking about cyril okay that's right so uh you 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 have to turn to uh i i would love to buy more gosha on dvd especially the french versions but unfortunately robin those are currently way too expensive to buy secondhand uh the old hk video gosha collection even if it's a two pack of movies or a three pack of movies it's 70 80 90 120 euros and currently it's a little bit too expensive for my for my wallet so yeah, I'll, I'll i'll have to turn to other sources sometimes to to watch my stuff but uh, I'm, I'm happy to support if uh, if uh, if a sets come down a little bit in price because uh, they, they are cool uh, sets uh, that uh, hk video did for for gosha movies yeah, they're so expensive right now. I yeah, I, I just can't believe it's it's gone up to the to prices like sometimes like four hundred euros. Oh. So it's uh, I mean uh, now it's gone down a little bit like one hundred fifty euros. I could accept those prices for one of those multi movie sets. That's okay. That's fine. It's a bit more luxurious uh, because they did good work on those editions, but. Sometimes I don't know what these sellers are thinking um, because if you w- would you really take a loss if you sold it for merely 150 rather than 400 euros? I, I don't think they would. <laughs> I don't think they would be taking a loss. So sometimes I just no. think it's uh, uh, silliness and greed. That's uh, uh, that's a discussion for another time. We will link, of course, to the book as we did over different volumes as we did last time. You can get it on um, on the French uh, Amazon site for reasonable uh, prices. Uh, uh, I, I don't think your books have been uh, are like uh, super expensive secondhand, not yet anyway. So um, no, they're not super expensive now. <laughs> in the meantime, the rest of the contact information goes as follows, and this is Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. We are located on podcastonfire.com along with our back catalog of episodes on Hideo Gosha, but we've done a series on uh, director Sabu which I'm a great fan of 
very uh, very funny very quirky director there's a connection to sabu and the an oil hell murder as i realized when i read the cast list when i saw shinichi tsutsumi oh yes i was like boom sabu's main leading man for a couple of movies yes and uh, and they're very young looking uh, shinichi um, shinichi tsutsumi and uh, we've uh, we have a back catalog of uh, various other shows on Hong Kong cinema, on Korean cinema, on uh, adults only cinema. We have bonus episodes and a plethora of choices over there on podcastonfire.com. If you have any questions or feedback, especially if uh, if you're a fan of Hideo Gosha, please share uh, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. We are also available on uh, Facebook uh, via handy big colorful buttons at the top of our website and uh, once you reach facebook you can go to our discussion group to share and the discussion group is called podcast on fire network and uh, we would very much appreciate it if you uh, took part it's a very good natured no no trolling no uh, no arguments and no flame wars just good good people discussing uh, movies uh, in an adult way and that's a very rare thing on the internet so we we have to we have to keep it that way you mean you mean no donald trumping no trolling <laughs> no we managed to i don't know maybe because it's uh, asian movies no one no one draws a straight line to politics that easily <laughs> so uh, we, we 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 keep that stuff away and uh, if you want to follow us on other social media such as twitter we, we are available at podcast on fire uh, find us on Apple Podcasts and uh, rate and review us on iTunes and stream us finally on Stitcher Radio. I write about uh, not Japanese movies but uh, Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies on SoGoodReviews.com and I put up little uh, video reviews on SleazyKVideo.com. So that's us. We're going to give you a little summary of what to expect in this finale episode of Hideo Gosha. We will conclude the biography section we've been delivering bit by bit in each episode. And this is, of course, based on uh, Robin's uh, uh, written piece on Midnight Eye. He did a two-part piece on Hideo Gosha's career. And we will link to that uh, as well because it's an excellent, uh, excellent read. We will then talk uh, briefly about Gosha's uh, true life historical movie, Four Days of Snow and Blood, from 1989, before we finish up the episode and the series with uh, a more in depth review of the oil hell murder. So uh, that's uh, that's what to expect. And uh, first of all, uh, the uh, the biography that we are going to conclude here. And uh, if there are any errors, as I said last time, Robin, uh, in terms of me summarizing your your writing, that's because I wasn't paying attention. Or if you want to expand on the notes I'm uh, going to deliver, feel free to interrupt and uh, clarify and uh, uh, deliver whatever notes uh, you might have. So. Um, but we uh, we pick up um, in in the eighties uh, as we, we ended in the eighties and we pick up in the eighties and uh, after a stretch of female oriented films, uh, Gosha reportedly felt uh, fed up with his image uh, of uh, uh, of his this particular image, and uh, as was true for the rest of his career, he had uh, this instinct of wanting to reinvent himself and uh, step it up uh, quality wise, become a better uh, better filmmaker and. Uh, he thought maybe it's time for the male to take center stage to some degree again, but without copying himself. He just felt like he'd done the female-oriented stretch. He'd become awarded for it because the, the geisha was a multiple award winner at uh, 
the Japanese Academy Awards. I don't think it was a best film, but I believe it was at least best director for Gorsha, which uh, is a nice confirmation of uh, of a career. Because it's nice, Robin, if we stop here and talk of the Geisha a little bit again. It's nice that the Academy gives a big award for a great film rather than giving a, an award just because they have to. And it's for a lesser film. You know, uh, like uh, think back to when Martin Scorsese won an Oscar finally, and it was not for his best film. <laughs> oh, oh yes. So, so, so it was nice to see that the, the Japanese Academy awarded the Geisha because it was a quality quality drama that was well directed, and uh, so it was very nice. But uh, in 1989, at any rate, uh, Gosha made Four Days of Snow and Blood which is about the 1936 coup d'etat that led to the strengthening of the toughest military faction within the Japanese uh, government. Uh, it had production problems. Well, it, it, in real life, uh, the production was affected by the, the death of Emperor, and that prevented any direct reference to him in the film or during the promotion. I mean, the translation I saw for Four Days of Snow and Blood they mention the emperor, but they never mention him by name. So I guess that's uh, what uh, they were forced to uh, be a bit restrictive in that regard and not uh, name him specifically uh, out of respect or maybe it was simply forbidden to um, utter his name during a time of mourning and a time of crisis. Uh, do you know that personally, uh, what the restrictions were placed on the filmmakers after the death of the emperor? Oh, yes. I have to go back a little bit about the female-oriented uh, films. I didn't have that much information back in 2014, but in 2016 there was um, a new book in Japan talking about uh, Hideo Gosha and, uh, and films of his. Basically, they said something which I didn't know. Uh, actually, in 1980, as you already know, in 1982... Between 1982 and 1988, uh, Hideo Gosha made a number of films for Toei, and uh, he had uh, hits and flops. So, you know, basically the hits were Onimasa, The Geisha, Yakuza Wives, and the flops were uh, Fireflies in the North and uh, Carmen 1945, which is Gate of Flesh. And uh, Gate of Flesh is 1988. So basically, after the film was a failure, the, the Toei producers said, well, we don't have any more project for you. Uh, maybe we're not, we're not going to work uh, together again. The producer was Goro Kusakabe, which is uh, a good friend of Hideo Gosha. And he said uh, later... He said, well, um, I was really too bad. We couldn't work again with uh, Gosha. I just couldn't find any project for him. You know, he'd been doing films about women, a lot about pa uh, female passions, and it, f it fell out of favor with the audience, and they just didn't want to see that kind of film anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we were at a loss what to do with Gosha. So basically, it was out of work. In 1988, and as you know, he was independent. He was a freelancer. He was a maverick director, and so, so basically, he went back to Shochiku. You know, he'd been doing a few films for Shochiku, like Tracked. And so, one producer was Kazuyoshi Okuyama. 
he knew he knew Gosha from from mainly from Onimasa and having worked for Shotsuki as well uh, on tracks. So he wanted to work with Gosha. So he just grabbed a chance, you know, but he he approached Gosha for a Zatoichi movie, actually. Was that the movie that ended up being the 1989 Satoichi movie? Um, exactly. Right, right, exactly. Right. There's, a, there's a whole story be, behind this. But uh, to sum it up a little bit, he approached Shintaro Katsu and Hideo Gosha. And, and because Gosha and Katsu said, we would like to do a Satoichi movie together. It's kind of amazing that they didn't. You would think that every filmmaker will get a chance to do a Satoichi movie, considering how many they made. But maybe maybe Gosha was busy or they never really crossed paths back in back in the sixties and seventies. Well of course with Hitokiri with, with Hitokiri of course. Even even after in the seventies, I mean they they were in touch. But you know there there were two alpha alpha males. Katsu had a had a bad reputation to be to be honest and he was very bossy. And so, and Zatoichi was his baby. So Gosha and Katsu just parted ways, and and the Zatoichi movie was never made with Gosha. It was was directed by Katsu. And so Okuya, uh, so Gosha said, "Well, well, I'm sorry about not making the the Zatoichi movie." He said to Okuyama, "So I, I'd like to do any film you'd like me to do for Shotoku." I, I wish to explain that uh, Four Days of Snow and Blood was not a film which. Hideo Gosha had in mind. I was working, was working on, had been working on for years or, or months. It was a project brought to him by Okuyama. And there's a very funny story about how, the, how he took on the project. So Okuyama said, well, I, I've got a few films for you lined up. And now uh, I've got a remake uh, of Yojimbo by Kurosawa. Wow. That's a big burden to carry if you're going to remake a classic. Yes, you know, Sanjuro San, San was, was remade in 2007 by, I think, it was Yoshimitsu Morita, and it was not a very good movie. So, <laughs> so Yojimbo was, obviously, it would have been a very big burden. Gosha was not excited about uh, remaking Yojimbo. Among the films lined up, there was Four Days of Snow and Blood, which in... Japanese is called uh, Ni Ni Roku, 226. So 226, you know, after the date, uh, uh, February 26, 1936, which is the 1936 incident. And Gosha was born on February 26. No. <laughs> wow. The story is there was a, a, a list of movies for Gosha by Okuyama. Number one was... Uh, Yojimbo remake and number seven was Nini Nini Roku, so two two six. So Gosha he he went down the list and he said, Oh, Nini Roku, that's fine by me. Nini Roku is my birth date. I'll do that one. <laughs> so Okuyama was like, what? You you don't want to do Yojimbo? No, I don't want to do Yojimbo. I want to do Nini Roku. <laughs> Gonna use my gut feeling that this is this is for me. That's the one. I mean, he knew about he knew about the story. He knew about the the, the 1936 incident. I mean, it was was something very well known in in Japan, and it was all about you know the antihero again, the, the the tragic hero. So that was appealing to him. So that's how he decided to go for Niniroku. Was uh, the filmmakers literally forced to never utter the name of uh, of the emperor? 
considering uh, what happened in real life uh, that he passed away so you have to know something so in 1986 there was a re-release uh, a limited re-release of Hitokiri by Shochiku Gosha talked about uh, Mishima Mishima was a you know an emperor loving uh, figure uh, like a modern samurai who killed himself in 1970. 70. So Gosha said something that right-wing group didn't like, and so basically they mugged him, they attacked him. So he knew about the dangers of uh, addressing issue, topics like the emperor, uh, Yukio Mishima, <laughs> you know, everything around the emperor. So basically, he knew he didn't want to make a political movie, and uh, Shochiku didn't want to do a political movie as well. There had to be no, no re direct reference to the emperor, who died in 1989. So he has no name, uh, no, no explicit reference, uh, no, no critical reference to, to the emperor. So no, no backbiting about the, uh, the emperor. So everything had to be glossy and sweet. But the problem is the emperor was against the young officers and the senior officers who did the coup d'etat. So they had, there was a problem, you know, in the script. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's unavoidable that, and, and in the movie, they, I suppose the, the compromise was that, well, we have to mention him by title at the very least. And uh, that they do, because uh, he, he was involved to some degree he was he was a figure that was present and uh, i don't know if there were criticism afterwards but but certainly gosha and the production came to the conclusion that well we'll we'll reference the title of the emperor quite a lot of times because that should be okay and we must for the story otherwise why tell the story uh, at all so it, it it seems like anyway in the english subtitles that the emperor by 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 title that is okay Yes, that's okay. They they didn't mean to criticize the emperor, and uh, uh, that that's not something Gosha wanted to do. I don't think so. So basically, they made a film about the officers, not so much about the emperor. But the problem was the promotion. There was a problem with the promotion of the film after the death of the em of Emperor Hirohito in nineteen eighty nine. So. Because of the national mourning, they could not promote the film during daytime. Right. Okay. Ama amazing as it sounds, they had to promote the film during night night time. So that's what I read. So Okuyama was a little bit worried about that, but the um, the promotion, the nighttime promotion, was very explicit. It was like uh, we are the soldiers of the emperor, uh, you know. And the film ends with Ten no Heika Banzai, which is a famous line by the Kamikaze, for for instance. So, uh, Hell the Emperor. So, it's a very emperor-friendly movie, and that's what Shochiku wanted to make anyway. So, there wasn't any problem with the, uh, the right-wing uh, groups. But I have a specific anecdote about that anyway. <laughs> a later, a little bit later. There will be a, a sort of sweet, warm thread throughout this uh, remainder of this biography uh, connecting to Gosha and his relationship with uh, the producer you, men you mentioned, uh, Katsuyoshi Okiyama. But, but, but it starts with the fact that they apparently did not agree during the production of Four Days of Snow and Blood on whatever. And uh, Gosha apparently did not stay with the film all throughout the post-production. And the movie was finished up 
in some shape or form by by the team uh, themselves whether it was in editing or whether they needed to shoot a little bit uh, on their own to finish up the movie but uh, I, I will return why this is a warm story between Gorsha and the producer at least I, I got the impression that it's a warm story and uh, but, but the sort of conclusion to Four Days of Snow and Blood apparently despite the nighttime promotion and the morning uh, the movie did uh, did well and they uh, apparently young viewers responded to to the story and perhaps young viewers uh, got a little bit of education I suppose uh, because uh, in 1989 this story was old in the eyes of the young viewers, I suppose. But uh, apparently uh, people went to the cinema to uh, to see this, even though it was a movie that needed to take some, make some compromises uh, for its uh, vision. So um, uh, that's very cool. The, the, the thing is uh, why Gorsha was absent during the production. The, the, there might be more, more explanations for that rather than being angry. Uh, but because it turns out he had gotten... Um, uh, he, he had gotten ill. He had cancer, and he was terminally ill. And there we return to the uh, the warmth and the sweet nature. I got the impression of reading of him and producer Okuyama. He continued to work with Gosha and stay with him. And he pre- approached the director for additional projects in the wake of Four Days of Snow and Blood. Together, they made the gangster movie Heatwave in nineteen ninety one. And apparently Gorsha was was uh, he he was ill during the shoot. The production did did its best to uh, to maintain to maintain the production and make sure it the movie ended up in the can and was released. And apparently Heatwave was a big commercial hit, and uh, people and the producer wanted to work with Gorsha again. But uh, I think you know if you're sick, then it's not easy to just snap into. Okay, I'm gonna work and be creative. And uh, Gosha declined the uh, work that was offered to him, and he felt like possibly his last movie before dying should be the Oil Hell Murder, which will we're gonna come back to. Uh, it ties ties together. We, we've reached the Oil Hell Murder, and uh, well, why I feel uh, I know nothing of producer Okuyama, but uh, reading your piece. It, it warmed my heart a little bit that he stuck by the sick director, the ailing director, you know, maybe his friend by this point, because he wanted to support the director who wanted to make a last grand artistic statement despite being being very sick. And indeed, he concluded the production of the Oil Hell murder, seemingly. I, I didn't find any notes that he had to leave in the middle of the film or anything. It wasn't a critical and commercial hit or anything, um, but but apparently the the uh, uh, it was sent as an as an entry for the American Academy Awards. Uh, I don't think it was ever picked up for nomination though. And uh, indeed, in uh, in 1992, Hideo Gorsha passed away shortly after the release of the Oil Hell Murder. And uh, and uh, in the wake of this, it actually won a few awards in Japan. Uh, at the ceremony held by the Japanese Academy, it won Best Supporting Actress, Best, best Art Direction, and uh, Best uh, Cinematography. So someone saw qualities in the acting and the technical execution of it. So um, that was very heartwarming. Uh, I don't know how much is on record in terms of what Okoyama thought of Gosha as as a professional working partner and as a as a person during this time. But your your piece, Robin, really gave off the impression that producer Okuyama was uh, being very kind and also you know he was, lo- he was looking out for the director and wanted him to produce but also was supporting supporting uh, someone who uh, did not have 
that much time to live anymore. So uh, I'm, I'm just going by gut feeling, Robin, that Okuyama seemed like a good man for uh, for being there for his friend and making sure he got to make a final final movie. Well, Okuyama has um, was a very influential producer in the throughout the 1980s, uh, 1990s. In, in Japan, working mainly at Shochiku with his father, Toru Okuyama. And he wanted to make um, commercially successful films. He wanted to make films that would sell abroad. He wanted to make co-productions. He, but he's, he's famous and infamous as well for Rampo because he was a very intrusive uh, producer. In Shochiku, you know, is it's... Uh, a lot it's mostly about producer control so he wanted to to keep contr- tight control over the projects which he which he oversaw so you know rampo he just ousted the director from post production and he made his own version of rampo i think he reshot or yes i think he reshot 70% of the film himself so what happened with uh, actually what happened with Four Days of Snow and Blood was Gosha was or physically was physically declining already and he felt something was wrong. I think he didn't shoot all the scenes which were required, you know, from the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And Okuyama at one point said, "Well, you've you haven't shot all the scenes, all the all the stuff." Gosha said, "I'm not going to do it anyway." So no, you, I want you to do it. I want you to film all the scenes. And Gosha said, well, I, do it yourself, okay? I'm just quitting. I'm, I'm leaving. And Gosha disappeared, vanished, literally. So Okuyama waited, and, he, and Gosha came back, like um, two, two or three days later, he came back with a scar on his nose. So if you see Gosha with a scar on his nose, you think Yakuza, <laughs> or right-wing uh, groups, but no, Gosha said, no, 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 it's nothing, it's not, it has nothing to do with Yakuza or right-wing extremists. Uh, it's just a, a minor accident. Uh, so Gosha came back, but he still didn't want to do, you know, the, the, the retakes or the, the, the scenes he had to do. So basically they went into post-production and Gosha vanished again when they were doing the, the sound mixing. And the audio mixing. Okuyama tried to to phone produce the Gosha, and there was no no answer. Gosha just vanished. So Okuyama, you know, had to do part um, part of the post production himself. And so he was, you know, he was used to uh, take over when directors well failed or or just couldn't, you know, do the things he wanted to be done. So on Rampo, he just reshot part of the movie and edited his own version. But he was he was very supportive of Gosha once he knew that Gosha was terminally ill. He didn't he didn't say, uh, well, if you're sick, just go to the hospital and uh, for treatment and goodbye. Okay, thank you for the movie. He was very, very supportive. Mm. And he said, well, if you want to do another film, uh, just Okay, uh, you know, Four Days of Snowblood was was a very big success. So, so obviously he he still wanted to work with with Gosha, and he said, "What what would you like to do now?" And Gosha said, "I'd like to do a Yakuza, a Ninkyo, a Ninkyo movie." Well, and Okuyama said, "Well, you know, Shochiku and Yaku, Yakuza movies—it's two different worlds. So I can't do 
a Toei Yakuza movie with Shochiku. Impossible. And Gosha said, well, I, I'd love to do a Ninkyo movie and we, we could give it a title that would evoke something like passion or, you know, not Yakuza world. So that's why they called it Kagero, which is heat, heat wave. And so Okuyama accepted, so complied. And so after Kagero, Kagero was another big hit. So Okuyama said, well, I'd like to do a sequel now, okay? Uh, Kagero, The Return, part two, with a vengeance. But uh, Gosha said, no, sorry, I'd like to do the OL murder. So he was very, Okuyama was very supportive. And he said, we're like a couple anyway. Gosha is the woman and I'm the man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gosha is hysterical. He's the hysterical type artistic type you know is always uh, yelling and uh, and drinking and uh, you know is very excessive and i'm i'm the, I'm the the cold uh, i'm the, the rational type i'm the producer so they were like a couple he said and i, I he was very supportive yes like a, a very professional aura but also personal personal connection to a degree because um you never know what kind of types you encounter in the movie industry i suppose if they if they find out you're sick maybe they just uh indeed say okay bye then we can't make any movies anymore and then that person moves on but it it sounds nice that uh, he was willing to see see it through and uh stay there till the end so to say and then uh and and, and does he did i'd like to quote seishi sakai you know he he said something like uh, Gosha was born under uh, a star of misfortune and he had a very big ups and very big downs. And every time he had a big down, he was pulled through by, he was helped by uh, major figures of the, the movie industry, uh, you know, so like uh, Okada at Toei, like uh, Sato for the Hayuza and Chochiku. And obviously, Okuyama, Okuyama, until the end, until his death, was a very supportive producer. To sum it all up, like, like your piece did, there uh, were some quotes on to to sort of briefly summarize what Gosha was and is, I suppose, because it's important to note that he was uh, a versatile filmmaker. And, and, and your piece said that uh, Gosha was, was not just a maker of samurai or Yakuza films. He was a director with feet, his feet in both male and female-centric narratives. And even producer Okayama put it like this, that Gosha was a painter of dark passions in the hearts of alienated humans. And that reveals a depth in the filmmaking that throughout this series has often uh, delighted me and surprised me that uh, it's not easy to find many similar films in feel even though he did a couple of samurai movies they, they never felt like boring repeats of free outlaw samurai or sort of the beast there was always something new developing and i think that that's the advantage of this series going through the beginning up until the end with the oil hell murder that it allows hopefully the listeners but certainly me who has experienced this coverage to form a picture i didn't know exist necessarily i i only remember having seen one movie and then i started work on this series and then i got to expand my palette a little bit and that's something that was very nice and something your 
piece of Midnight Eye really emphasized too that um, there is a lot to appreciate with uh, with Gorsha. Uh, maybe some things that go underappreciated, but uh, that's what uh, persons that are passionate about the filmmaker and uh, continue to write about the filmmaker uh, like yourself uh, that's what persons do they try to uh, make that memory stay in the consciousness and uh, you certainly have with your passion of uh, of Gosha so uh, you know the, 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 the cinema is immortal so he, he may be gone but uh, the movie certainly certainly stay and they are not uh, these these old awkward movies or anything uh, rather they are quite uh, quite relevant and um, and uh, they still have an effective an effective nature to them so uh, it's all uh, a way of uh, concluding the biography uh, we've uh, talked uh, of uh, sort of the production issues of four days of snow and blood but uh, as we said we were going to give you so some brief review material uh, personal review material connected to the movie and uh, i had not seen the movie before and uh, I didn't personally know of the 1936 incident because I'm not a big history buff and uh, even if I read about it sometimes I can't uh, keep information in my head. The movie still um, it's a solid movie. It has some weaknesses in particular in the second half that I'll get to. But thankfully you don't need to know that much about the incident to appreciate the movie because Gosha gives us enough information at the start of the movie but also as the story unfolds we understand the different stages of this uh, military action that ultimately uh, to to change the government and to uh, to try and provoke change in japan that 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 didn't happen and we understand that uh, quite well when um, when watching the movie but i think the first half robin is uh, probably gosha at his um, his work in the first half of this movie is probably the best uh, best especially the long sequence in in the snow and in the night where this operation is uh, taking place um, you know the, the, these are regal military officers that have decided on something quite uh, extreme to try and take out as much of the government in one night only in order to to try and provoke uh, change and regime change and uh, we understand that context as and context and there's good tension as gosha starts to build the uh, the tension uh, leading up to the operation and the shootouts and uh, we see that these uh, soldiers uh, they both have strong belief and they have strong exteriors but some are some are scared because they haven't done anything like this they haven't cold done cold-blooded assassinations before and uh, so, so even though he shoots uh, robin uh, i'm sure you remember these images even though he shoots the soldiers with faces almost covered by shadows we do get to see them react to uh, this dark violence that they've never experienced before and uh, they have strong belief but it's hard to stand there looking at someone's face and uh, do what's required of you uh, in this case. Uh, the, the, the point is also the movie isn't asking us to agree with what they're doing necessarily. That, uh, that this is the right thing to do. It tells the story and uh, we understand it. And technically it's pretty exciting because Gosha was good at depicting uh, 
violence that stays in your head. The, the violence is quite chilling. I, I wanted to ask one thing about violence and uh, how Gorsha staged it. Did you ever hear anything about when he was working with his stunt coordinators and uh, uh, the action choreographers? Uh, was Gorsha very strict and meticulous in terms of how he wanted it to look? Because the way the violence feels here, it feels very planned. The way he uh, shoots uh, execution scenes and the way the squibs go off. It seems like it's, it uh, comes from a director who wanted this to feel right. Uh, it doesn't feel sloppy. So did, did you ever hear Robin uh, uh, crew or producer saying that Gosha really took his time to depict violence so it felt correct and uh, rather than just sloppily shooting it and then moving on so uh, did did you hear uh, that Gorsha was uh, uh, if he ever took his time and took a long time to get the violence right in his movies uh, I can't be very specific about uh, four days of snow and blood unfortunately uh, what I know is that he was always very specific with tachimawari I mean sword fights mm-hmm. And he always came up with ideas and he had a very good relationship with, you know, his uh, choreographer, uh, Kentaro Yuasa. Uh, later on in the, at the, in the, in the late seventies and in the nineties, he didn't have his choreographer anymore. So basically he was working with different guys. To, to, to me, it looks like it's, uh, if I were to guess, it looks like he, he was uh, paying attention quite a lot to it to make sure it felt correct especially these these assassinations in bedrooms and and things like that that takes place in the first half of the movie and the way people react to the blood squibs going off on them and it it, it feels very big rather than standard stuff for movies um so uh it, it it looks like he had a good working relationship with if it was a new stunt crew and action crew then it felt like it became effective. They did it effectively. There are many accounts of the incident and many accounts of the actual killings. Basically, they had something to work to work off. And um, so, yes, I think the rest is was up to Fujio Morita, the director of photography and, and the, the choreographers. Yes, I can't be more specific, unfortunately. Well, well the, the, the proof is in the cinema, I think, also that you uh, you see what's effective and you sometimes appreciate what, it, what isn't effective. Uh, I, I remember reading similar stories about uh, Hong Kong director Ringo Lam, that he, especially back in the 80s, he was very specific what he wanted. And you would have to spend some time getting it right. Even though it was chaotic violence. For instance, in his movie School on Fire. Mm-hmm. It seems like chaotic random violence, but that was the movie, I think, where he said, well, it needs to be correct. Even though it's chaos and it's messy and it's bloody, it's not going to feel that way unless we do it right. So mm-hmm. he was a filmmaker that I think wanted to... Uh, make sure it was right he wasn't one of those filmmakers that just handed over the work to the action director and he could go and have a meal i think ringo stayed there and focused his eye on on what was on screen because it was his vision there too so um, the structure of four days of snow and blood is that it it opens with this 20 30 minutes assault and then it stops because 
this next stage in the in the military action is to negotiate with the government now that they've assassinated a huge part of it it's, it's pretty solid and decent as we watch the silence of it all they, they they don't do anything there's no action for large stretches of the movie they negotiate with the government they get uh, good news uh, but then they realize they're being played they're being played for fools and now they feel weakened they feel smaller uh, the government seems to be still be strong they haven't uh, the government haven't buckled so these uh, young soldiers they are they are disappointed and uh, they find trouble being motivated to uh, go any further and they've taken a huge risk by engaging in this military action all of that is quite good and uh, you understand it even though i'm not uh, i'm the outside viewer who doesn't know anything about the incident i think the problem though occurs when gosha or maybe this is the footage that was shot by someone else gosha makes a late attempt to try and make us know each and every soldier that is uh, in this operation this incident by having flashbacks to their family lives and the problem for me robin is that he does it we, we don't know them before and it doesn't help that he flashes back to sweet family life with children and wives because he does it so much there are about five six seven flashbacks to different characters and it didn't help to get to know them it felt more like to be honest, it felt more like cheap melodrama a little bit. It it was a bit too much. It 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 lost effect. I think uh, I, I I was fine with just experiencing the soldiers within the story of this incident, and I I felt those flashbacks of uh, colorful times and happy times. They felt a bit uh, like someone someone had a late idea and pasted it into the movie and injected it into the movie, but it didn't need to uh, to be there uh, for us to understand to understand the movie. So, so I think uh, it, it is a solid movie with uh, with some uh, trademark <laughs> gosha violence. You have plentiful actors that you you probably recognize them all. I started to do some actor spotting when we see much of the uh, current uh, government and military have meetings because all of a sudden, oh, that's there's Tetsuro Tamba. That's yeah. not that's nice. Oh my God, Tatsuya Nakadai is in this movie <laughs> for two minutes. Yeah. It's one of those like um, old Toho war movies where everybody was in in it yes. in in yeah. uh, in nice suits sitting uh, sitting at tables discussing strategy get all the talent at the table and I, although i only recognized two two actors essentially but uh, it was it was i was reminded of one of those old movies where oh cool toshiro mifune is in this movie for a minute I, i'm fine with that because he's cool and tatsuya nakadai is uh, is the best actor there is so i'm cool with that as well good first half robin for me I found the second half intriguing enough because I didn't know how this incident would develop. But then I think it becomes a bit sloppy with the melodrama and the drama towards the very to, towards the very end. So yes, I think we 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 need just ex- we need to explain a little bit the melodrama. Shochiku films basically Shochiku films are targeted at female audiences a little bit more than maybe toy films, you know. But in the in the 1980s, every studio was trying to get the female audience. And it worked, actually. So 
So Okuyama said, I'd like to do a film, Okuyama, the producer, said, I'd like to do a film that would attract a male audience and a female audience. So in order to attract the male audience, we have to give them action, obviously, and we have to give them something, yeah, something military, which is a little bit exciting, a little bit frightening. And in order to attract the female audience, we have to give them something sentimental. So Kazuo Kasahara, the screenwriter, he was already a seasoned screenwriter, having worked on many Yakuza movies, uh, especially Toei. He did not really want to do something sentimental, actually. He wanted to do something about male bonding, but he wanted to do also something more in-depth about the young the young privates, because many among the young privates who took part in the coup d'etat, they felt manipulated to some extent. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to show how they felt manipulated and frightened and how they would hesitate and waver. And uh, Okuyama said, no, we'd like to do something more about the senior officers, because the senior officers are more appealing and more um, dramatically exciting than the privates. So they were all, I mean, Gosha, Kasahara and Okuyama, they were fighting, you know, over the, over the screenplay. Gosha, he took sides with Okuyama and he said, okay, you want to do something sentimental, we're going to write in female characters. We're going we're gonna to put female characters in the script. So Kasahara-san, please, could you write in female characters? And uh, reluctantly, Kasahara uh, did just that, what he was asked to do. And he wrote long scenes with female characters, like the wives, the girlfriends. And so Okuyama thought it was very good. And they could do something like a pa you know, parallel editing. You know, one scene with the wife, one scene uh, soldiers, one scene girlfriends. But it didn't feel right. I think that's why they did the flashbacks. It feels like a very late idea, but also it doesn't feel natural. I think it literally feels very like they uh, they they rushed this idea to the screen. Um, I probably would have been fine if they kept it to a, a few flashbacks, but for a while it seems like the movie has decided to be all flashbacks. It loses something. I, I understand the idea that they wanted to humanize these uh, these senior officers, but it really doesn't work because it it almost requires a second movie or a longer movie. And this isn't a very long movie, actually. Well, it happens all the time, you know, producers wanting something and mm -hmm. director wanting something else. Like, uh, I have a I have an example in mind with uh, Brute Force, which is a, an American film by Jules Dassin when he was still working in Hollywood. And it was a film produced by Mark Robson. It was a, a, a jail movie, a prison movie. And with uh, several male characters in a cell, which was actually impossible. Like there were, I know, five guys in a cell. Hmm. And, and so the producer said, well, I would like to attract a female audience as well. Could we have the prisoners having memories of their girlfriends and wives? And Jules Dassin, the director, unlike Gosha, he said, well, I, I don't want I don't want them having memories of their girlfriends and wives. I don't care. So, no, 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 you have to write in female characters in the script. 
So that the same happened with Four Days of Snow and Blood, and they they wanted to attract uh, you know a young uh, or middle aged female audience. I'm not sure, but they wanted to attract the, the female audience. Yes. For for you, uh, or what movies? Uh, what part of the movie works better for you? Because you 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 know as much as I do that uh, it starts out very violent and strong, and then it's more quiet in the second half because that's the development of the incident that uh, they were now negotiating after having performed the assassination. So which part of the movie works better for you? Is it the more violent, visceral stuff or the more quiet stuff as the government negotiates with the rebels? Uh, the very first scene in the movie, to me, is a, is a, is a minor masterpiece. Because actually, they um, it's, it's very funny. When the film was released... There were many, many, many bad reviews. Mm. Okay, let's be honest. One of the one of the critics wrote, "This film is colorless, has no passion, and does not go into the political context of the time." Well, colorless. It was done on purpose, actually. Uh, they used a process called bleached bypass, which is, you know, it's 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 done with the chemicals, you know, retention, silver mm. retention. And uh, so they, yes, they subdued the colors. And the first scene is everything Gosha wanted to say about the movie. The first scene starts with black and white archives and then goes into the fiction fiction part with the soldiers uh, having a get-together. And it's so the colors are very subdued. It's very, very much like black and white. And then gradually, the black and black and white image goes into color. If you remember, mm -hmm, you know, sure. yeah, there's a there's a I don't know a tie or a scarf, something uh, red. Yeah, it's very. Uh, it's only one element of the frame that's first in color. Like so, it's not the entire, entire exactly, frame. Exactly. Exactly. And then through the colors, because it's all about their 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 hopes for a better future. I'm not sure if the coup d'etat had succeeded. I'm not sure Japan would have changed so much. I'm not sure about that. But they, these soldiers, these officers, they have hopes for a better Japan. And so the color is here to say, with the, you remember the, the, the trees and the leaves and, uh, and the bright colors, uh, autumn colors. And so these are our hopes, but it's already the colors of, of the autumn of the fall season so these the leaves are gonna fall they're red already and i think he says it all through the colors black and white the past a midsection with patches of color a full color image with trees with the future and then back into subject colors and it, it's wonderfully staged and they did a great, great job with the colors, the black and white and the colors. And Bleach Bypass basically is like a, a, a black and white image over a color image. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that's simply not being done today because today it's, it's digital color correction. And so uh, this is very much an old physical process that you uh, need to get right because you're working, exactly. with, you're working with physical elements <laughs> rather exactly. than digital elements. So. Mm. It, it, I, I, I didn't say it, but uh, it's very, very evocative that because it, it does take place at night, this major part of the incident, but uh, they darken the what I assume are stages so much that, that, that it becomes both 
yes, it's night and there's snow, but it really feels uh, quite eerie that the stages they are running around on are so dark. You 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 see the streets they are on and uh, the buildings that surround them. And maybe it was a budget solution. I don't know, but uh, it really looks evocative that these uh, almost uh, these identify unidentified faces are preparing for uh, such a big action, military action, and the atmosphere is quite uh, quite chilling and. Uh, it really is a tour de force in many ways during the first half, I think. Yeah, one thing we have to say, you know, the, the coup d'etat was uh, played out uh, during the night under heavy snowfall. The actual soldiers, privates and officers who took part in the February incidents, they loved the fact that it was snowing because it was very evocative for them. It was like, you know, the day... Uh, Naosuke I, which was a, sh- a counselor to the shogun, I think, or uh, rem- the emperor of the shogun, and he was killed at the um, uh, during the Bakumatsu, during the last years of the shogunate, and he was killed under heavy snowfall. It gave, in a way, in a way, when they were actually doing the coup d'état uh, under the snow. To, for them, it was like they were in the 19th century during the same thing, like killing Nauske E, which I'm not. I'm. I don't want to condone. I don't want to say it's. For sure, for sure. <laughs> it was nice in any way, but uh, that's what I've read. That it was calling to memory the the assassination of Nauske E under heavy snowfall, which you can see in the film Samurai Assassin by Okamoto Kihachi. But you know, in, it's also it's filmed a little bit like this: the forty-seven Ronin, you know, uh, going to the mansion to kill the bad guy. You know, remember the the forty-seven uh, Ronin? Usually, in that scene, also it's played out under snow. So it's, I mean, it's like iconic memory being revived for the whole Japanese audience. Maybe not a very young Japanese audience, but as you said earlier. The young audience liked liked the film very much because it was like an, a very iconic moments of tragic heroism, which is uh, which tr- strikes a uh, deep chord with the Japanese audience. You know, the tragic hero. For sure, because especially in the second half when they don't have the momentum anymore, and it seems like the the government have are in control of the chessboard and. Then everyone is uh, feeling that that motivation, that first night contained, is not there anymore. Even though they're not fighting, there's no action. It's a, it's a stalemate essentially. They're waiting in the streets, and sometimes uh, the government drops um, leaflets onto them with uh, instructions that you need to you need to yes. go back to your units. Uh, the, yes. em- the emperor commands. It is nicely told. Uh, you you understand that the predicament and uh, the doubt in their hearts and minds and uh, that some of the senior officers or even young officers feel like it's not going well anymore and uh, we are doomed and we can't turn we we can't afford to go back to our units because we we've sealed our fate by performing this so all that is pretty solid so it's just a shame that it was just uh, they injected such a big splash of melodrama to to make it in their minds like okay now we're going to catch the the commercial audience the paying audience by doing this it's a, it's a little bit of a shame that they took away 
from it because I was fine with no. I mean, this sounds harsh, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was fine with no female-oriented stuff in this movie because it wasn't about the family life. It was about these days, this week of incidents. So it's a little bit of a shame that they um, they wanted to uh, splice in these uh, backstories. But the, despite the commercial elements, the melodrama, it's it's a film about, you know, about very specific Japanese fantasies of rebellion and transgression. Mm-hmm. It's about the tragic hero. And, you know, man, many different things have been said about the, the officers who did the coup d'etat. For example, I read in the book that they they thought about killing the emperor if they failed. I'm not sure that's true, but yes, they wanted to replace the emperor with a prince if the emperor disagreed with their uh, actions. I read that. Uh, They know they're doomed, uh, and you have to accept. When you are doomed, there's no more rebellion anymore. You have to accept that you're doomed and you have to accept responsibilities for your action. And that's a very, very Japanese thing. But mostly it goes back to, you know, you know to, to fantasies of rebellion. I mean, from, from the uh, 18th century, from, it's made in order to give uh, a moment of, of, of fantasy of rebellion to the audience, to the Japanese audience. And I think the young audience liked it very much for, the, for this particular reason. And it felt also that it depicted at least the basic stages of the coup d'etat well enough. I understood where we were in, in, in the timeline and what the developments were. So hopefully that means the Japanese audience, young and old, thought that this was that, that it was done thorough, thorough for a two-hour movie. That, that it, it, it didn't feel like they took out massive amounts of important events within the coup d'etat it, it seems like it gives a, a, a good overview of uh, of what happened uh, and uh, so i got an understanding of what went right in their eyes in minds and what quickly went wrong for them there's a there's a funny anecdote about that you know the the the, um, the writing of the screenplay was quite long and you know bickering over elements of the screenplay kasahara gosha okuyama and Gosha didn't like the documentary-like approach. So, you know, that's why he did away. They, they decided to do away with many, many uh, facts and details. Uh, it was too heavy. Would have, been, would have been a long movie too. Would yeah, w- a long movie, yes. And, and Gosha still didn't like the, the approach. And he felt like he was bound up by the, the 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 real the real stuff the true stories and he wanted to do away do away with it i think he did away with lot of, lots of stuff to focus on the melancholy and the on the on the feelings on the on the wavering you know mm-hmm. and uh, to emphasize you know the tragic nature of these rebels yeah because because, because there's not lots of these uh... Uh, 10 minute scenes of uh, government meetings uh, at tables that they, they often quickly cut to the soldiers uh, exactly. uh, and, and mix it up quite well I think they do try to identify real life uh, at least in the English subtitles uh, they try to identify what the real life pr- uh, characters are that either dies or 
or head of the negotiations I'm, uh, because I'm sure either Tetsuro Tamba or Tatsuya Nakadai played to some extent real characters even though they don't appear for very long in the movie uh, we, 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 which is by the way uh, as a side note I'm always impressed that uh, the Japanese film industry during this time and several decades before they often had access to to the big names even for brief appearances uh because, <laughs> because because i don't think nakada is in more than one or two scenes as and and i didn't spot him at first and then i saw those eyes those eyes behind that beard and i was like <laughs> boom that's him <laughs> welcome back to the gosha gosha land of directing uh old you know old cinematic friends old working mm-hmm. partners so mm. i'm not sure it's a big uh, as big of an acting uh uh, acting spotting showcase like a Toho War movie, but uh, it, it certainly has a, uh, an engaged to young and old cast. I think uh, uh, it seems like uh, they, they got a balance across the board of uh, old veterans and uh, and uh, new faces. And I think uh, one or two acting awards was given to the movie too. So um, they, they recognize some of the uh, the faces, despite many being in in soldier soldier outfits and uh, things like that and and, and heck even um, even the poster has a shot of a soldier with a darkened face so it's almost like uh, this movie would have characters we don't get to know very well because they are soldiers they are machines so um but they yes the film like the, like the characters the film hesitates and wavers a little bit between something very dark, nihilistic, and something a little bit more melodramatic. And so, yes, the balance is never really there. But I think you have to understand that, yes, there's a... uh, Gosha was feeling that there was a longing for rebellion that got lost after the war and was killed by capitalism Mm -hmm. and the reconstruction of Japan. So... Basically, he was saying there's more passion in the young men or the young officers who did the coup d'etat than in the young men today. And basically, I think he said with each of my films, I want to give the Japanese audience something to revive yourselves. So, you know, like like I said, there's nothing physical anymore or nothing emotional anymore about our history. It's all about economics, about money. And so I'm going to give you something that goes back to our traditions. Even if you think that it's, uh, a, it's a little bit, um, that it smells like uh, something a little bit going back to true emotions. And and the, the Japanese critics really took that up and they said it's all about Japanese emotions, which in, in, uh, in Japanese is Nihonjo so no Hanashi, which means a, a Japanese story with Japanese emotions. So the film was not meant to be sold interna- internationally. It was meant to be very Japanese. So if you don't like the emotionality of it, if you feel uncomfortable with all the men bonding and having, you know, etadam, having this kind of melancholy and doomed spirit, then you don't you don't understand the Japanese spirit of it. I mean, a little bit a little bit of traditional thing for sure. And I'm glad so much of it came came through though, and so much could be understood. Uh, I'm always a bit afraid of historical movies that I, I need to do tons of homework to even understand 
the basics, but uh, they did a good job communicating uh, the uh, the story beats. And, uh, and and you're right, it didn't seem like this was sold internationally. I, I, I saw a poster in your article for an international poster for possibly a, a Canadian festival. Uh, I believe there's a poster that says Montreal on it. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So so it, it probably was shown, but uh, obviously it never... I, I, I don't think there ever was a, a Western dvd release of this because it's a it's a bit harder to sell this on from the director of free outlaw samurai yeah i remember going to to see a move a big war movie at the Cannes film festival and it was the same kind of story but this time about the kamikaze uh, soldiers and it was never sold <laughs> internationally it just doesn't work with a an international audience you know go hideo gosha was um was a, a trainee pilot in the war, and then Japan lost the war. So there was a sense of, uh, I would say, a sense of betrayal, of of being betrayed, you know, by the emperor. For many, for many Japanese uh, young people and not so young people, uh, four days of snow and blood is 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 also about portraying in a subtle way the fe- the feeling of being let down by the emperor and by the authorities of the nation you know when it when it went like a full uh, in total war uh, against the the west it's 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 about the sense of sacrifice that stuck with many men even after the war i mean they were ready to die for their country i don't i'm not saying that it's something uh, patriotic nationalistic uh, i'm just talking about the emotion but but it doesn't mean it shouldn't be made and we're, we're glad it was made it, it added another an, another another entry on the gosha filmography that's uh, that's uh, interesting and uh, important to uh, to to absorb so let's move over to the very last movie then and our, our our sort of main discussion even though we discussed four days of snow, snow and blood quite a lot but we're going to talk again of the oil hell murder from 1992 which sounds like cheap horror movie or something <laughs> about maybe an oily monster who knows but it, it certainly is not um, a genre horror piece or anything uh, it's from 1992 and the plot from imdb written by user lament it goes as follows. Uh, the character of Okichi, played by Higuchi Kanako, is the board wife of a rich oil dealer. Yohei, played by Shinichi Tsutsumi, is a young man who's the son of Okichi's former business partner. As a child, Okichi often cared for the boy, but uh, when his father dies, uh, he moves away. And years later, he returns as a man, a 20-year-old man. And Okichi momentarily falls in love with him. But Kokiko, the beautiful daughter of a rival oil dealer, is also in love with him. So it's a, it sounds like a soap opera, but it's uh, not... Uh, that cheap or anything uh we, we we might drop some production details because i'm sure robin knows one or two but i'm, I'm gonna give you my brief opinion first of all uh, i haven't seen this movie before it, it is a period piece but it isn't a big epic or anything it's quite scaled back it's focused on drama between a limited set of characters and i think that makes sense because this was apparently based on a stage play so it keeps it uh, restrictive to a degree but I think Gosha has good focus on the drama and the psychology, and it's sometimes an erotically charged scenario, which makes it uh, quite nice. And it's also nicely cinematic at certain points. It's it's not this filmed stage play, but he he chooses moments that for slow motion that become very haunting. Uh, he, he picks his moments well, and I think it's a very accomplished, accessible film. 
especially if you appreciate that Gorsha was more than samurai or yakuza. And as a final film, I think it's a, it's a good piece of work, um, in my opinion. And I'm glad he uh, he got it made and had the uh, stamina to get it made. I guess that's my question. What, what have you heard about Gorsha being sick? Was he able to uh, conclude the shooting? Uh, because if he was that close to dying, I can just imagine his energy would have been low. Or has anyone ever said anything about Gorsha's uh, state of mind and uh, state of his uh, physical state during the production of Oil Hell Murder? Yes, he, he was very, very sick. He had to go to hospital very often. I mean, almost every day, even before the film, or the production actually began. And the problem was, uh, no studio was... I mean, the script was written between 1986 and probably 1987. And uh, no studio really wanted to take it up. Yes, it was it was a very famous screenwriter, Masato Ide, from uh, some, some Kurosawa movies. And uh, so Gosha approached the, the screenwriter because he wanted to do something very, very solid and very artistic. And he felt he needed like a, a very famous screenwriter. I mean, like at the time of Hitokiri, you remember that he, he did. Uh, the screenwriter was uh, Hashimoto Shinobu, who had worked with Kurosawa. That tells you a lot about Gosha's ambition in wanting to, to size up to uh, the very big directors, you know, and making a film that would, that would like, be his, his statement. Um, so, but nobody, nobody was interested in the script. It stayed in the drawers for some time until Okuyama said, I'd like to do Kagero 2. And Gosha said, I'd like to do Oil L Murder. So Okuyama said, okay, I'm going to help you. I'm going to talk the producers at Shochiku into, into giving some funds for Oil L Murder. And then Gosha went to uh, his old friends at Fuji Television and he, he got help. He got backing from uh, Murakami Koichi and Nomura, she's a, a producer at Fuji Television. So it was uh, like a co-production, you know, between several companies, um, television and movies. That's how they got the film off the ground. And they seemingly they no word on the fact that he couldn't complete the film. Seemingly Gosha, after, you know, even though he had to go to hospital, several times he could complete the film um, and uh, stay there until it was until it was finished well obviously he was not the first director to do uh, to make a film while being terminally ill you know there was a similar story with uh, Uchida Tomu a very famous Japanese director making his last film you know Miyamoto Musashi number six <laughs> Uh, with uh, Daisuke Ito as a screenwriter, and he was also terminally ill. There's a scene which Gosha could not film personally, and the scene was the ma- the marriage scene. Right. Well, the biggest the, the biggest scene out of the movie. Yes. The yes, in terms of staging, probably exactly, yes. Yeah. In terms of yes, the, the biggest scene, but uh, maybe not the most complex scene. He had to rest. Because the scene was not shot 
in a studio. It was shot in uh, Homihachiman, which is uh, a few kilo kilometers north of uh, Kyoto. And so they had to go by, by car, obviously. Gosha went with uh, Morita, the director of photography. And I mean, Gosha was literally dying. So, so Morita said, okay, you just go back and, and rest. Okay, I'm going to shoot the scene with your storyboard because it, they had they had a very strict storyboard. The wedding scene was, you know, it was not the most complex scene. I mean, it was, it's um, like a master shot, you know. Mm -hmm. and so, so this was done without Gosha. That's that's what I've read. Right. Well, it it, it really comes off as a movie that uh, feels completed by by the person you see directed uh, directed the movie. It feels like it's um, it, it ties up. Uh, the not so to say it's not this cheap way out to make a stage play into a movie because that's what i think what makes it engaging gorsha isn't here to make this big stylistic statement with tons of violence and uh, complex camera work it, it's supposed to be quite a constrictive film between four or five characters essentially but there, there is a there is a stylistic hook to a movie because uh, we we see a murder scene at the beginning of the movie. Uh, even though it's a period piece, we have um, officers coming in here to try and reconstruct what has happened. It's quite fascinating how he uh, the camera moves along the floor and we see all of these these details that we don't have the context of. Then he goes with the big credit on the screen. Boom! The oil hell murder. So I I, I kind of like that. It's classical because then the movie is a flashback movie. Uh, we obviously need to find out what led to to the uh, this homicide uh, of sorts. Um, but but it's not a police procedural because we never see any such officers again. Really, it's a good it's a good looking production and it. But it's all you also can access the characters and uh, the change in the characters especially uh, the so to say adult man who's a, who's a man child really uh, yohei who engages in engages in uh, you know he sees geishas and uh, geishas apparently send love letters back to him written in blood and they send him their hair and their toenails it's completely disgusting but he's like a child and when he's with his friends and with the geisha at one point they are they are poking this i guess deaf sentenced couple that's uh yes and they're poking them with sticks like they're animals so they're you know one character says well now yohei is a grown man no he's not because he's a child who knows who knows nothing really other than having worked in the oil oil business and uh he's a he's a rebel and he's a, he's angry he he can afford to indulge in uh, buying geishas but he's uh, he carries anger and resentment, and Gorsha begins to paint uh, quite a good portrait of human psychology, and that's not boring just because it's a plot about about oil merchants. I think, uh, on the other hand, I think it's uh, it's quite engaging. Uh, Gorsha shoots this in a very straightforward way. He establishes the characters, and he also gets quite a uh, good acting dual showcase from his uh, leading lady and uh, his uh, leading man uh, Higuchi Kanako as Okichi and then Shinichi Tsutsumi as Yohei they are really f 
stretching together because you you think she Robin is this uh, she, she's in control she's the adult and she can probably uh, control the little child easily because the child is a child and then we realize that she's quite weak and then he becomes a little bit stronger and both of them are really good together she is fetching she's a beautiful woman but obviously in the uh, in the traditional period costume and makeup she looks even more fetching and shinichi tsutsumi who i think was going by the credits it seems like this is one of his first movies he'd been on tv a little bit and then later i saw him in sabu's movies uh, dangan runner uh, postman blues monday of course we, uh, so he he became part of these wild wild movies but he he here is very young but he's a very uh, an accomplished actor so i think what one of my favorite sort of memories from the oil hell murder is the fact that the production looks very fetching but it's uh, also interested in uh, just watching the character's psychology unfold and what leads to the oil murder <laughs> the oil hell murder if you will so i don't know I, i'm sure there's plenty of other gosha movies you can say he'd he'd been focused on characters and uh, been shooting it in, in a very standard straightforward way but i think i i think i might be more impressed because of the fact he was so ill and yet this is quite a focused character piece and do, do you have any notes on that do you think uh, he mixes uh, does he do that well portraying the psychology while also making a good looking movie that doesn't feel that doesn't feel um uh, boring looking i mean it's a period piece so it needs to feel look like um quite uh, elegant at the same time but uh, is it compelling the way he uh, focuses on characters you think in this one uh, i do think so uh well they changed the, the play so much i mean it's it's really impressive this was not the first time the the play was adapted for the big screen is, is it a very old play therefore yeah it's a very old play from the 18th century right and it was not successful at the time because it was too dark. You know, uh, the, the, the playwright is is known for Jidai Mono, for uh, Jidai Geki plays, and and mostly for double suicide uh, plays. Right. <laughs> I think he wrote something like 15 or 17 uh, su- double suicide plays. That's why there's this whole play with the uh, the double suicide thing, you know, in the in the film and the story as well. The the character of Yohe in the play was probably the most nihilistic character ever written, because he was very ambiguous uh, and he was too too ambiguous for the audience of the time, because he ki- I mean basically he killed Okichi the the wife of the oil merchant he killed her in cold blood for money he was not apologetic about it and this the play kind of ended on the murder and then the character would leave would leave the theater you know the hanamichi and the only trace of guilt was his his way of walking out of the out of the room actually he trembled a little bit but that's the only you know the only thing <laughs> about his guilt in the play. The playwright was uh, saying something about the new generations of the merchant class, and you could apply that to the contemporary society as well. I mean, like, for example, the Taiyozoku generation of uh, the middle class, uh, the post-war middle middle class youth, youngsters, 
had money and yachts and, you know, you remember maybe uh, Shintaro Ishihara, you could apply that to young people today. They have to you have to live in a very, a very uh, capitalistic world and and uh, is money the new value? So it, you could apply the character is very modern. It's almost like a like a James Dean uh, in crisis, you know, uh, <laughs> in the 18th century. Uh, he doesn't want to work in the oil, in the commerce of oil. He, he want, he's very hedonistic, and uh, so he's very modern. And so the audience at the time didn't like the, the play, actually. But uh, Gosha changed it a lot. He was not interested so much about a youngster who would uh, kill uh, an older woman for money. So he wanted to have a game of, uh, of, of attraction, desire, he wanted to have something more erotic. So, and the film is, is all about attraction and eroticism, obviously, and with a very strict color code. Uh, and you know, there's a word in Japanese, which is irokei. Irokei is, means like a little bit like eros or eroticism. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's about adding touches of color, you know, which means sex, actually. Right. So if you if there's a very strict color code in the film, you know, with a gray, gray and brownish would be society without emotions, without passions, because it's forbidden. It's dangerous. So it's forbidden. There's no place for emotion. So it's all about uh, appearances. And so the society is gray. You know, the, you remember the, the streets and the, and the grayish and the uh, houses mm -hmm. and everything is kind of gray and brown so no emotion no color and remember okichi okichi when she has set a mind on making love to yohei she chooses a red kimono and she and the red kimono the color of the red kimono bounces off the kimono and highlights her cheeks which kind of turn into pink and red so there's a wonderfully, a wonderfully well-made color code in the film where you understand that we are going from the dull world into the world of passion, which is unreasonable, of course. Gosha is not apologetic either about that. I mean, he wants to show what he wants to show the good sides and the bad and the bad sides of passion. He wants to show that the heart, the passion is like a battlefield as well. There's a nice simmering kind of feeling that's possibly going to boil uh, as he depicts these two characters because you you think one character is Yohei is this out of control failure and Okichi is the flawless adult but I do like that um, he argues I suppose in the play and the screenplay that um, even the most rational of adults who think they got everything in control in their minds loses control and just engages in in this case pleasures they they shouldn't engage in and that's a little bit of a of a downfall for for the character and that sounds like oh i've seen that before but it never really feels uh, like this old story old old tragic story that we've seen before because the actors are engaging and the uh, the the switch in characteristics or that they become both flawed i suppose is compelling but by the end yohei in fact comes off as a little bit more of the adult although he acts on he, he still got rage but um she has 
fallen a bit more than we were expecting and they they are really good together my, one of my favorite things in the world is watching actors being good together on screen and i think uh, shinichi tsutsumi as uh, the sort of say young one and then uh, higuchi kanako as the older as the older um, character they're really good together i checked their age by the way robin they're not that far apart in age as a matter of fact i think she's a few years older but that that's obviously speaks to that he looks young he is young and um that she is inhabiting a character that's uh that's his uh elder and uh he considers her uh she calls him uh, auntie at certain points so uh, what did you think of them together because they have le- several one-on-ones and gosha just focuses on making their their dialogue scenes together as compelling as possible so uh, do you think because and, and uh, this needs to work higuchi kanako and shinichi Sutsumi, if their scenes didn't work then you have a failure on your hands so how so how did you think the interplay between those two work oh uh, well i think it's wonderful uh oh, actually the shochiku studios i'm not sure if it's shochiku or fuji television probably shochiku they were against casting uh Tsutsumi. Uh, they said he has no iroke. You know, you remember the word? He has no, there's no eros about him. Mm. He's too young. A producer from Fuji Television said, well, you don't, just just let Gosha choose the, the, the male actor he wants uh, because you understand nothing about eros and he understands everything about eros. So if he wants it to me, okay, let's go with Tsutsumi. And eventually they got to eat their words because Tsutsumi, he never stopped being good. He uh, he he kept being better and better and better and uh, yes. st- still enjoys a wonderful career. I think the wonderful thing about the, the movie to me is the way he films Higuchi Kanako's face mm-hmm. until desire uh, takes hold of her. We go, yes, obviously we go from a very white face a very tranquil face to a face filled with desire and passion. That to me was, I mean, overwhelming because I was waiting for the moment where the pink color <laughs> and the red color would, I mean, uh, uh, start appearing on her face. And it's all about the moment when desire is going to, you know, to titillate and, uh, and, and overcome her. I love that, especially that. Kanako Higuchi was the most erotic actress of her, of 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 her time. I mean, she was, you know, she was she did um she did a a, an, a photo photo album of her completely naked in the buff. Um so she was challenging censorship so in the, in the early 1990s and she no in the in 1980s and she played in uh, several erotic films before Oil L Murder. It was very interesting. Maybe for the first time in his career, uh, or second time in his career, Gosha had a very, very erotic woman, but he didn't use her in a very, very ero- obviously erotic way. He used her to fit his own vision of eroticism and passion. Exactly, because uh, we, we, we didn't expect her... I didn't know anything of her and therefore didn't expect her to have any nudity in the film in Oil Hell Murder. We do get it, but it's it's not uh, a big moment. It's just 
part of the passion, the clothes come off and oh. Yes, it's like uh, uh, Kanako, it's like, it's like he was saying to Kanako Higuchi, like, let's go back before you did your album in the buff <laughs> <laughs> and show the, the, the birth the uh, the genesis of your uh, uh, desire, eroticism, and passion, and let's show that in the film. I'm, I'm not going to do a big sex scene with you. You know, it's he didn't do any sex scene either in uh, in Kagero. Yeah, yeah, I just noticed in the credits she she is presumably the leading lady in in Heatwave as well, but a damn fine actress because uh, she's very expressive uh, even behind tons of makeup and costume and uh, uh, becomes very theatrical without being overwrought or anything we, we, which is a nice balance because um, she uh, she needs to be very expressive and uh, she certainly is and uh, going back to 1965 you you remember sword of the beast there was a relationship between um, a samurai and a wife and they were like they were a couple the man Obviously, he behaved like a samurai, um, but the woman had a little bit of desire in her. You remember with Kiba, uh, not Kiba, I'm sorry, not Kiba, uh, Genosuke, played by Hirami Kijiro. She said, I'd like to be a beast myself and roam the mountains freely. So in 1965, we have the dawning of Eros, of something uh, of desire, something erotic. And it's very, very sweet, obviously. It's very subdued. And so in 1992, we have Oil L Murder, which is all about fluids. And <laughs> going back to 1965 and going full circle, you know, in 1965, well, Hiromi Kijira, the actor who played in Sword of the Beast, he said that uh, from 1965 on, onwards, uh, Gosha was interested in uh, onna no saga, which means the uh, female sensuality, I mean, eros. Everything, everything erotic about women. He made a transition from the world of sakki, S-A-K-K-I, which is the desire to kill, um, especially between men, but anybody could have sakki. And he made a transition from sakki to onna no saga, so the world of eros. So, and I think in, um, it makes sense. And it, it's that, that's why he, he goes full circle in 1992, because the ending of uh, the oil, oil L murder obviously has Saki and Onna no Saga. Mm -hmm. as desire to love and desire to kill. And Hideo Gosha was a very skilled director in terms of showing us the dark passions, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the dark passions in human hearts. So it is coming full circle with the, the ending of the film, which is like even in a way like a tachimawari, like a sword fight with mixed with desire. It, I think it's a very evocative scene for the Japanese audience and for us as well. If you remember a scene like um, the, the final sword fight in, um, um, uh, sorry, I forgot the title. It's a Uchida Tomu film, uh, Broken Lands in the Mount Fuji. Yeah, in 1955, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a, it's a fight in sake. The, 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 the floor is covered with sake. 
So the characters, actually, it gets very sli slippery. You cannot help but thinking about scenes like that when you watch the ending of Oil Ale Murder and the slipping over the floor. But I mean to say that it's, it's a sword fight with passion, which is, makes sense in a way. He is not showing us two samurai fighting. He's showing us a woman and a man fighting for two different desires. The, the man's desire is obviously their sexual desire, but it's all about eiji, which is pride, and female desire is about personal ambition through sex. It is very evident when you watch that particular end fight that, that, that set amidst uh, oil on the floor. And uh, uh, it's wonderful to have that interpretation for, from you, combined with the fact that the movie is so you, you can appreciate it so much uh, in terms of the story element or the story of the play and what leads us to the final confrontation because he I, I thought it was really impressive and, and engaging that human psychology and especially how weak certain characters get that you didn't expect as I mentioned and it, it is theatrical in its staging and sometimes acting but it it feels natural uh, as acted as nat natural as uh, as shot as a movie because he even though he focuses on performances gosha it's not a boring shot movie or anything it quite uh, his director of photography varies up the the cinematography quite a bit and uh, and yet at the same time you're always sitting there thinking of uh, the characters making choices that you didn't expect uh, and sometimes characters choices that are characters that are broken some that so sometimes they these choices do not have to make sense when characters lose control and they spiral downwards and i, I think this movie makes a case for that you thought okichi was the adult then desire overcame <laughs> took her over and that's an okay development and uh, in engaging development and i i also wanted to say gosha does time jumps without announcing that it's now one month later or two months later he expects us to follow that we've now jumped ahead a little in time and he expects us to follow that we're now in a flashback his belief in that makes us uh, also believe in that choice you don't need to put things on the screen sometimes robin to help us along sometimes it, you you can be a little bit elusive and still the audience uh, will catch up uh, easily and I uh, and I certainly did the, the final scene uh, I I quite like that uh, it almost seen almost seems like it's a scene that was shot silent and then they added the foley of the oil being trampled in and the characters falling over you know Robin the fuds the boom 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 it, it, it's almost like a muffled soundtrack it seems like it's here a soundtrack underneath a piece of cloth or something so we don't hear a lot of shouting from the actors or a dialogue with the actors it's almost like they created this scene afterwards the sound was created afterwards and they they were reserved with how much sound they wanted so it's it's almost hypnotic the way it shot which left a, left an impression actually and without being overly violent actually god is there any blood in this movie a little bit of blood on the floor, I suppose. <laughs> it's more oil than blood, Robin, in this movie. That's uh, that's for sure. So that's a change from 
a Gosha movie that it uh, it keeps it uh, it keeps it uh, blood free, but it's still an engaging uh, engaging movie. So you have to pay attention to one line in particular in the movie. Uh, I like to to, to to say a few words about that. For sure. Um, it's in in a scene between I think it's a scene between Okichi and Yohei, so Kanako Higuchi and Tsutsumi, and they're talking and 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 then uh, Yohei says, uh, "You should not underestimate men," and I I love that line. I don't know if it's in the play or not. Maybe maybe not. Uh, I love the the line because I thought about Gosha saying, "Don't never under don't underestimate me as a director." Mm-hmm. I just couldn't help thinking about Gosha's line, "Don't underestimate me," and then the line, "Don't underestimate men," because usually the you know the men are supposed to be weak in all in all the films with the female passion. The men are supposed to be weak, and the female is supposed to be strong. I love, I love the fact that Yohei, overcome by passion, to, uh, seizes the blade and and kills Okichi. That's actually one of the premises, well, or one of the promises of the film. And Gosha fulfills it. He is not apologetic about passion and about the dangers of passion. Obviously, in terms in terms of of narrative in Japan, it's supposed to be a morality piece. Because if you're overcome by emotion and passion, you are actually you kind of have a bad karma, you know. You you know in in term in terms of Confucianism and Buddhism, you should you know you should you should get rid of passions, get rid of emotions, because it's supposed to be in Japanese they say it's supposed to be dark blood. So Gosha takes it literally and films a man and a woman fighting to the death. And he had done this already in Hunter in the Dark in an amazing way. I remember, if you remember the scene with Tanigawa played by Harada Yoshio, he was in his bath and there was a woman or one or two, I can't remember right now, and coming with a knife. And this time he does it again, but he does it, he does it through the filter of emotion, desire, passion, jealousy, hatred. And that's that's basically that's the world he originates he originates from. He he grew up among Zegan, geishas, prostitutes, yakuza, and it's the world of it's a world of of unreasonable emotions and passions. It's a, it's a dark world, as he as he said. And so he goes back home basically. They they he kills her. But it's still, he loves her. In this way, the film is universal too. It's all about the theme of "I, I love you, I kill you," and so everybody can relate to that. And and he doesn't want the character to be punished at the end. I love the fact. In the play, you have in 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 the play in a kabuki play about such a character, you have to kill the character, punish the character. You know, the son, the bad son. Because the son is supposed to have uh, social obligations, it's not supposed to be overcome by desire. But Gosha loves the characters who are overcome by desires. They are more human to him than the characters who are uh, who abide by the social obligations. So he's in love with the the two characters, the characters of Okichi and the character of Yohei. If they love with the love they have, because of the social obligations. It has to end in death, so it's very logical 
but he does not blame them for the passion. He, he loves his characters and he loves even the darkest passions he loves. And he wants to show the dark passions this time. And and that, I, I suppose, a final question to this. I mean, you know what went on behind the scenes. We know he was ill. But do you think anyone who saw Oil Hell Murder for the first time, didn't know anything of a director, would even sense that this was made by someone who is ill? For, for my money's worth, it doesn't show up because they, they, this is a very full, focused and complete film. It doesn't feel. No, yeah, I think you're right. We, we, it doesn't feel that he was terminally sick. Because the, the way the, the, the themes you were just speaking about, clearly those were still on his mind. He could still communicate that. I, I, I don't know uh, exactly what type of cancer he had, but um, clearly his uh, mind was still active and he could, commu- he could communicate and complete the, the sort of thesis and theme of this filmed stage play, so to say, because I think we would have picked up if this felt incomplete in, in some shape or form, where if, if it wasn't a movie that saw its characters, uh, it completed the cycle of its characters. But I, I really think that, I mean, it's a great film to go to as your final film, and I'm, I'm happy that, uh, that, 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 that someone could channel creative energy despite the illness. And I mean, of course, this was his life, so maybe finding that energy is you know your motivation to complete but um if your body is shutting down then you you don't know how that's gonna if you're gonna going to be able to to uh, stay with a movie and complete it and it seems like oil hell murder was um, you know when he called his last shot he was he was literally finished and no one felt that they were missing something to complete uh, uh, complete the story so uh that's a, a little bit heartwarming that he, he, he got to make a final fi- final statement and maybe uh, uh, complete the circle, as you, as you talked about, in terms of themes from 40 years earlier that now show, shows up in his very latest movie, despite not being a samurai movie. Uh, because it doesn't need to be for, uh, for themes to be... Uh, if the themes from a samurai movie pops up in a period drama... That's okay. It doesn't need to be confined to a particular genre. It can be in whatever genre he chose, and he chose many genres. And I'm glad that this was part of their part of their filmography. He, he said something. I think he said to his daughter one day. Uh, I mean, Hideo Gosha. He said to his daughter Tomoe. He said one day, um, "I never could love any woman in my life uh, because we are too different." So you know, he was. He was a man from the old world, you know. He showed male and female as equals on the screen, but he was a macho guy in his, in his life. And he said, to me, love, love is like water in my hand. It flows, it flows away. It's something uh, I want to possess. I, want to ma- I like to make love to women, but I can never love her. Um, what I'm looking for in my own life as a man is different. So he loved to show the how men and women fight over their desires. And he had to recognize that women were fighting for their own desires as well. He had to recognize, he had to acknowledge that after his own divorce. And he had to acknowledge that women were very strong and they were very vindictive and were, and were fighting for their own desires. And that's why, to me, the, the, the final scene makes sense as well. 
you know, he could have stopped the, the, the final scene before the death of the woman, like the police arriving or somebody arriving and stopping Yohei and taking the, the, the blade. But he wanted, to, he wanted to show the full spectrum of passion until the end, until death. And, and so to me, it really makes sense. It's, it's very dark, but it's full of, of the kind of desire or the kind of colors of desire he wanted to show in, in his work. So it's very, and in, in terms of, of finishing the movie, uh, he, he could not attend the premiere. He was unable to attend the premiere. He was too sick and he died shortly afterwards. And I've, I've read that um, in terms of, of the actual shooting, well, you know, he had a screenplay, a great screenplay by Masato Ide, and he was scribbling, you know, uh, all over the, the screenplay. He was he was writing uh, many many notes in the screenplay as well as names of medicine. Mm. <laughs> Sadly, I have to take this medicine, this medicine, this medicine. It is in the screenplay, and then there was one sentence in the screenplay which was very impressive for the people around him. The sentence was, "I have to stay alive until the film is completed." Wow. Well, that was the sentence he wrote. So, well, yeah, he um, he certainly did, you know, willpower, mental power and uh, via the power of those around him who believed in him, because, you know, if, if he had had constant confrontations with his producer and crew and writer, maybe he wouldn't have been able to contain that energy. But but as we established, he had a team around him that uh, were more than willing to see this through because it uh, it was work that was uh, meaningful and for for a director that's. Uh, that's uh that's meaningful uh certainly and a classic director for heaven's sake i, I don't know how often like gosha comes up in discussions among japanese scholars of of various genres but uh, certainly his work has not been forgotten completely and obviously we still get a modern day representation on video and dvd and blu-ray for of his work so so obviously it's still it's still out there. It's not forgotten. Maybe Oil Hell Murder is not the one that people think of immediately, but it's certainly um, it's, it's it's present and available. And then after that, he went into the world. Gradually, he went into the world of passion, of eros, of, of and sex and desire. More gradually, he portrayed male characters that were weak, weaker and weaker, and the women were stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And in a way. Even though it's it's a little bit like a joke, uh, what I'm what I'm I'm going to say is, is a little bit like a joke, but in a way, he, with the last film, he said, "Well, don't don't underestimate men. I know I've portrayed very weak men, but this time my character says, don't underestimate men, and I'm stabbing back a little bit about the female, <laughs> <laughs> because I've been I've been so weak myself for years and years." So I'm going to show you a little bit about male passion again, and not about sacrifice, but about how a man who is in love can be very, can be very, very crazy, very mad. Indeed, and uh, it, uh, it 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 comes through in the film, and it's approachable. And uh, if you get a chance to see it, do see it. And uh, as for availability, uh, it is presumably still part of the Criterion Collection or part of the Janus Films. Uh, catalog and it was streaming on uh, on hulu 
before uh, the Criterion Collection was put on Filmstruck, that is now closed down, but at the time of recording, Criterion's new own streaming channel will hopefully have the past Hideo Gosha titles, including this one. Uh, for, for Filmstruck, Robin, they gradually added the Gosha titles. Obviously, when they started up Filmstruck, they wanted the big titles first. You know, all the Koshava or all the other, uh, you know, whatever, uh, French titles up there first. And they gradually added Gosha. So they even have tracked on on, uh, on Hulu. So that, that was part of the Criterion collection. But my, my point is that we hope that the new Criterion channel that launches sometime in April, it is April currently, will have the entire range of Gosha titles the Criterion collection did have, including the Oil Hell Murder, because that means... For US audiences, um, there will be a translated version on the streaming. What happened with Filmstruck was, even for someone in Sweden, like me, I could pay for it, but I needed a VPN to change my location to to America, for instance, and then I could watch Filmstruck. So hopefully the new Criterion channel, they will allow outside uh, viewers to pay for it, and then you can change, change your location with VPN and get it fully legally that way uh we'll see because uh, the criterion collection and the japanese films and um it's quite extensive especially uh, especially the gosha library that wasn't all put on uh, put on disc uh, i couldn't find a listing of a japanese dvd or blu-ray for the oil hell murder but uh, that doesn't mean one wasn't out there i know it was put out on vhs because i found a uh, a still image of the vhs cover mm-hmm. uh, so they did put it out on on video at least once but um uh, there are English subtitled and uh, custom editions out there on the internet. Uh, mine was based on the French DVD release of the film. Uh, and presumably, I'm guessing this was one of those uh, HK video collections of Gosha movies where they had maybe uh, two movies in one pack or three movies in one pack. Uh, Four. Four, Four, as a matter of fact. Cool. <laughs> uh, so, so they saw the they, they saw like the Gosha movies they wanted to put out. They started at one point and then ended at the last point. So, so they they saw potentially presenting the Oil Hell Murder on DVD for the French audience. Uh, obviously, not subtitled in English because it's not the market for it. But um, uh, that was cool. Uh, do you remember what the titles they? They put in that uh, for uh, that edition with Oil Hell Murder, or were they like different genres? Like one was Samurai, one was Oil Hell Murder, one was the Geisha, or I don't know. Maybe it's hard to program each edition to be connected movies. Maybe maybe you just need to, well, we'll put Samurai Wolf 1 and 2 in one pack and then Oil Hell Murder separately all together. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I think it was Sword of the Beast, uh, Kagero. Uh, Hunter in the Dark and Oil Hell Murder. Very, uh, very different films. Covers the spectrum quite nicely. And you, you can get these editions uh, secondhand, but as we established uh, last episode and this, it's quite expensive to uh, collect the HK video discs um, uh, physically. But um, do uh, do look for them. Uh, it, it, it's it's hard to look up them by title. You ne- you need to know the title of the set. If you go to Amazon in in France, so but I'm gonna try and look up the links for it. So I think there's a a new generation of young filmmakers in Japan now looking up a little bit to to Gosha, and uh, they are looking up to Gosha because they 
realized that he was uh, an interesting portraitist of um it was it was an interesting director in terms of showing women mm-hmm. on the screen and so, so you know there's there's two Hideo Gosha maybe so you know the samurai film director and the female film director i think it's all it's all one director obviously of course but I think a, a, a young generation is surprised by how he was able to portray female passions on the screen. So that's, it's a very good thing. It, come, it, it comes through in 2019 and is not viewed as something old and uh, not approachable, but rather on the contrary, it is. You know, it doesn't feel old necessarily um, to me. And, and those serious about film and they're looking, looking to learn about directors they don't see a movie from 1992 as an old movie or a movie from 1950 something something because it's um it's the movie and not uh, the year okay cool well thank you very very much uh, well to you robin but for everybody for sticking with us and uh, but but again for you robin for helping me to conclude the series on on gosha in in a wonderful expressive and nuanced way that i wouldn't have been able to do myself i i, I certainly will take some of these notes with me as i re-explore but also continue to explore gosha's movies because i i've maybe we covered a fifth of the movies in this series and i still have tons still to watch i i I try to pick something from each era a little bit of samurai a little bit of yakuza and and modern day and uh, then into female centric and so forth so Obviously, I still have movies like Sword of the Urn to still watch, Hunter in the Dark, and uh, further Yakuza movies. So um, it's uh, the the adventure isn't over, but it's going to be uh, uh, outside of the show where I uh, where I look back on c- certain movies. So that's going to be fun, and um, to to re-explore those movies I uh, I have now on the show will be valuable to re-explore because I have some some nuanced notes uh, from you so thank you very very much robin for taking that time and uh, therefore um, the floor is yours for whatever words you want to say but also uh, uh, for those uh, curious uh, 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 what is the name of your book uh, whether you want to do it in french or not so people can look it up if they are interested in reading reading more it's something like uh, hideo gosha uh, the masterless director or something like that right on any final final words before we before we uh, sign off here? You know, Hideo Gosha had the reputation for being a very macho uh, director for many for many years. I mean, he grew up among women. He had sisters. His mother was probably a, a low rank geisha. I mean, he had a very deep interest in women, everything female. You know, from the sex to their spirits. Somebody wrote one day that Gosha. He doesn't just show you women. He shows you how you could be a woman yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all, we, we're all partly male and female. He shows men as female and female as men, which is very Japanese, actually. But he, sh- he shows you this in a very harsh way. He doesn't show you this in a very friendly way, you know, very cute way. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what makes him appealing. And, and it's all very erotic. It's all very passionate. But he probably films female like men and men like the female. And he shows you how physical, physiological it is. 
Um, and he shows you how passion, desire affects your mind, affects your body, affects your movements, affects everything. And to do this on the screen, I mean, you have to be incredibly possessed by something female to do this. So I would agree with a journalist who wrote, he didn't want to just sh show and film women. He wanted to become a woman and understand what it felt like to be a woman in this world. I thought it was a, a wonderful from the, from, the, from the journalist, the critic who wrote that. Um, it's probably very true. That's a summary to take with you, listeners. Hope you have explored or are gonna exp are gonna explore whatever Gosha work you choose first. Uh, I'm not gonna say that you have to start from the beginning or anything. Uh, if you're a fan of genre, then maybe you want to start with Samurai or Yakuza. But if you're a fan of drama, then uh, heck, go for go for the Geisha first and uh, explore in any way you like in any direction you like yeah that's uh, valuable too don't feel like don't feel burdened to start at the beginning otherwise you won't understand the trajectory so because in the, you know in the taisho era in the 1920s in japan there were some male artists who said or even intellectuals who said that the well japanese society is primarily female actually and many men think this way and the the intellect in the 1920s the intellectuals said that the 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 female uh, would become stronger than the male so in a way <laughs> the oil, the oil l murder is the final battle between maybe a world where in a japanese society where the female and the male are in more live in more peaceful terms and you know it's like uh, it's a symbolic fight in a way for sure before before the a new society and uh, that's that's us uh, just uh, as a final wrap-up for all your podcast on fire network needs including the back catalog of japan on fire and this series on hideo gosha go to podcastonfire.com all the relevant social media links and uh, and apple podcast links and so forth uh, will be available in the show post and are always on the site and uh, of course we'll link to robin's book and uh, that's us finished for this coverage. Uh, Gosha will live on uh, because uh, I have more to watch and Robin uh, surely uh, will find time in his busy life to re-watch a Gosha movie every now and again because it's uh, it, it's a never-ending uh, source of uh, pleasure, entertainment, uh, interpretation and uh, so forth. So, um, yeah, so uh, again, I want to thank you, Robin, for taking the time and uh, for enlightening us with... Uh, with your views and the nuance on on Hideo Gosha. So uh, I'm very grateful for that. So uh, I've been Kennedy and with me was, was Robin Gatto. So say goodbye and thank you very much again. Okay, thank you very much, Kenneth. <laughs>